while back, uh, while at home on a Saturday morning, I was visited by two men from a familiar religious group who wanted to share with me about their belief system. And I, I let them, and I noticed as they shared that they were using terms that were familiar to me because they are terms that are often used in Christian circles. But because I had, I had studied about the world religions and cults and seminary, I knew the major differences between myself and them. But I let them finish and then I ask a simple question. I said, what do you believe to be true about Jesus? Then we began to talk about what they believed and, and, and what the Bible teaches. And it's amazing how their answers to that question completely cleared the waters. The answers they gave were telling and revealed to me that we were on completely different pages, though at first they were trying to make it seem as if we were on the same page. For example, though they believed that Jesus was significant, they believed that he was a created being, yet scripture teaches that he is supreme and creator. They believe in, and teach that Jesus is less than God. Scripture teaches that he is God. And I shared this with them, and though uh, they did not uh, trust in Christ, the Lord of Scripture, for their salvation, I believe we both went away on that day knowing where each one disagreed. First, it wasn't clear, but when we got to Jesus, it all became crystal clear. Here's my point. It's so important when you're talking to people about what they believe and why that you center on Jesus because everything hinges on who we say he is. That's what Jesus was getting at when he said, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Believers, there is no question more important than that one. We, we must have what we believe about Jesus nailed down. The question of who Jesus is is the most important question in life. No one understood this more than the gospel writers, which is why they go out of their way to make this point in the stories they share about Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 2. We are finally back in Luke. Back in our series through Luke, we have taken a long break. We covered the first chapter and a half before Christmas about the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. We are still in the section covering his early life. Look at the outline up on the screen here. Uh, you received this. I put this in your insert uh, as an insert in your bulletin when we first started this series. This is the outline for the book of Luke, and there's where we are right there. Jesus' birth and early life. For the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about Jesus' earthly life. Today, we are going to look at three stories from Jesus' earthly life. The story of Mary and Joseph and Jesus as an infant. The story of a godly man by the name of Simeon and a godly widow named Anna. 
And in each of these stories, we learn some very important truths about who Jesus is. First, let's look at Mary and Joseph's story of obedience. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 21. Luke says this, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Verse 23, As it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay, let's unpackage this a little bit. Remember first one of the key lessons, Bible Study 101, when you're studying Scripture, look for repeated words or phrases in the passage. Notice the phrase repeated again and again in this passage. The law of Moses. Verse 22, law of the Lord. Verse 23, law of the Lord. Verse 24, notice what is happening to Jesus here as an infant is happening in accordance with the law God gave his people. First, he was circumcised according to the law of Moses, right? Circumcision was the covenant sign given by God to his people. It was an outward sign that set his people apart from the surrounding nations. It symbolized being cleansed from sin. The reason why is because in the procreative act, the sin nature was passed from generation to generation. Remember David said, in sin... Did my mother conceive me? David said, I was conceived in sin. So circumcision symbolized being cleansed from sin. It was an outward picture of what God meant to be an inward reality, like baptism. Jesus, like the faithful Jews before him, was circumcised. Now, let's stop for a minute and let's deal with the fact that Jesus did not need to be cleansed from sin, right? He was without sin. But this is done to him here because this is one of the ways Jesus identifies with sinners. That's why he came. It's what he came to do. That's what we see at his baptism as well. We'll talk about that when we talk about John the Baptist's ministry. He does it to identify with sinners so that he could save sinners. Jesus came. He became one of us. He lived the perfect life for us in order to provide salvation for sinners. He obeyed God perfectly. That's what he's doing here. He fulfilled the law of God. That's the first thing we learn of Jesus. Look at the first point here under Mary and Joseph's story. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the law of God. He met all the demands that were placed on God's people. He obeyed inside and out. He was right outwardly, but also right inwardly. He had the right desires, the right intentions, the right thoughts, the right words, the right actions all the time throughout his entire life. From his childhood, he obeyed the Mosaic Code. Notice here, at infancy, 
Jesus is completely dependent upon his parents, right? You ever thought about that? It's important that Jesus had devout, deeply religious parents to do these things for him. They're the ones who take him to be circumcised. They're the ones who dedicate him to God at the temple in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord for faithful parents. Amen? Parents, get this. What you are doing right now with your little ones, grandparents, what you're doing right now with your little ones is shaping them spiritually. It's very important that you realize that. It matters what you're doing right now for eternity. Man, I don't get it sometimes when parents are like, you know, I'll give them some material and they'll be like, oh, my child's just not old enough to understand that yet. Who cares? Teach them until they understand it. If they don't understand it at three and you start at three, they're going to understand a lot more at five than if you started at five. Just do it. It may seem like you're talking to a brick wall, but just continue to do it and know that that is shaping them. Do it. Train your kids. God, through His great providence, chose Mary and Joseph to be the parents of His Messiah. And through their obedience, Christ is our perfect representative. Swindoll said this in his commentary on Luke. Look at this up on the screen. Notice Mary and Joseph's meticulous obedience to the law. Joseph and Mary circumcised Jesus on the eighth day. They named him Jesus because God told them to at his circumcision. Mary observed her 40 days of purification. Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord. Joseph and Mary brought the required sacrifice after childbirth. The couple performed everything according to the law of the Lord. They were faithful. And through these faithful acts, God opens the door for his son to be an influential leader and teacher of his people. Think about this for a moment. Would, would any of the Jewish religious leaders have been accepting of Jesus if his parents were not obedient to the law of Moses? If Jesus was an uncircumcised Nazarene, he's not going to get an audience with anybody. No, Luke is letting his readers know here about God's providential work in his son's life. Jesus' parents were keepers of the law of Moses, and so was Jesus. He was the perfect keeper of the law. Jesus kept the law of Moses better than Moses kept the law of Moses because he was perfect, and his righteous works enabled him to provide a way of salvation for all who believe on him. It provided a way to make those who believe and follow Christ in righteousness. It, it, it enabled them to be saved and grow in godliness. It, it gave him influence and authority with his own people. People looked to Jesus during his earthly ministry early on before they demonized him. They looked at him as a, as a good teacher of the law. Remember, that's what the rich young ruler, that's how he referenced Jesus. He said, good teacher. So, so that's one of the first lessons we learned here about Jesus from this story. He is the one who fulfilled the law of God. He is our perfect representative. The one who perfectly met the demands of God's commands on our behalf. In every way that you and me failed, he succeeded. He lived the life you and I could never live. 
the life we failed to live so that you and I, through faith alone, in him alone, could be forgiven of our failures, cleansed from our sin, and receive his righteous life in exchange for our sinful one and be restored to a right relationship with the living God. Amen? Christ did that for us. Notice what else we learn here. Context really helps us with this one. It's really easy to miss this point. But this point was not lost on Luke's first century audience. We learn that Jesus is a humble and lowly servant of God. Look at verses 22 through 24. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, there it is again, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, when read in Luke's day, this would have taken his Jewish listeners back to the book of Leviticus. It's Leviticus 12 in our Bibles. There weren't chapters in those days, but they would have known where this was found. They knew in the Scriptures, where in the Scriptures to find these purification rites for parents and the process of presenting children before the Lord. When a Jewish son was born, he was to be circumcised on the eighth day of life. He was given his name then, and then 33 days after, he was to be taken to Jerusalem to the temple to be presented to the Lord, to be set apart for the Lord. The reason why the mother and father had to wait 33 days is because in this day, a mother was considered ceremonially unclean for a full 40 days after the birth of a child. God said through Moses, every Jewish male to be brought to the temple is to be brought to the temple and to be set before the Lord. Swindoll said in his commentary on Luke, he says, this religious observance was performed in recognition of the fact that this child belonged to the Lord. And a sacrifice was made. In Leviticus 12, we're told that they were to bring a sin offering. This was offered for Mary's purification, reminding us here, by the way, Mary, while devout, while obedient to God, favored by Him, Mary was in need of purifying. She was in need of forgiveness. Do you see that there? Mary, like every other woman who has ever lived, was in need of the work of salvation that her son would accomplish. So notice what's done here for Christ is significant. He's set apart at birth for the Lord. He's God's man. Set apart, holy unto God. Notice what else we learned here from this. Not only is he seen here as a holy servant of the Lord, but a lowly servant. Notice the sacrifice that Mary and Joseph make for Jesus. Nothing is in here by accident in our Bibles. Do you believe that? This is important. This would have stood out to the Jewish readers in Luke's day. A pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. Do you know what that would have indicated to Luke's readers in his day about Mary and Joseph? They were poor. They were poor. 
Moses says in Leviticus that if one was too poor to offer a lamb, they could offer birds instead. How about that? Mary and Joseph were too poor to offer a lamb on behalf of the Lamb of God. Too poor. So we learn here that Christ, God the Son, not only became one of us, but a lowly one of us. He was born son of a carpenter in the hick town of Nazareth. That's what Nazareth was. Skip down to verse 39. That's where we learn that. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, there's that phrase again. It's all throughout. Mary and Joseph were faithful to the law of the Lord. After these things were told, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Jesus was born a poor boy, the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. No one in this day thought anything good could come from Nazareth. That's the Messiah's hometown. So, so we learned here in the first month of Jesus' earthly ministry that he has come in humility to live his life unto God as a lowly servant of his. And he continues to live this lowly life up until his death. Paul says this in Philippians 2, Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And again, he did this to bring glory to his Father, to accomplish our salvation, and he did it as our example. Paul says in Philippians 2 that we as believers are to have this mind in us, the mind of Christ. Listen, if God the Son, being who he is, humbled himself, becoming a lowly, poor son of a carpenter from the hick town of Nazareth, if he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, how much more so should we humble ourselves and put others before ourselves? How much more so should we? We have no argument. Because Christ, being who he is, humbled himself, we should all, as believers, be willing to step up off of our throne, off of our high horse, and humble ourselves and love and serve others. We have no excuse. That's Paul's point in Philippians. You got a problem with that, you got to take it up with him in glory. Okay? That's Paul's point. How much more so should we? We have a perfect example of how we should live for God and serve others through the example of Jesus. Notice what else we learned. In addition to Jesus being the perfect fulfillment of the law of God and a humble and lowly servant of God, we also learn in this passage from Simeon's story that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Before we look at Simeon and Anna's story. Look back up in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So notice before he was even conceived, the Son of God was given the name Jesus. That is, the, the Hebrew form of that name is the word Yeshua, taken from two root words that mean the Lord and to save. These two root words put together mean the Lord is salvation. 
That's why the angel says to Joseph in a dream in Matthew 121, your wife will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That's the reason Jesus came. He is given this name before conception and it served as a reminder to all that he was sent to save. He was sent to provide the only way of escape for sinful humanity. The Son was sent by God the Father from heaven to earth to live, die, and rise again, to rescue man from sin and death and restore him to a right relationship with the living God. And like I've said in the past, folks, this was always the way. Jesus was not plan B. God wasn't looking from the heavens and said, oh man, the Jews messed up. Jesus, you're up. Not how it went at all. It wasn't that God's people Israel had a shot to accomplish this work and they failed to seal the deal and then Christ came. Christ's name being predetermined here was because the work that he was sent to accomplish was decided in eternity past. He has always been and will always be the only hope for mankind, the only Savior for the world. And it has been that way since the beginning. To learn more about the work that Christ is going to accomplish as God's man, his Messiah, the Savior of the world, we need to look at Simeon's story. Look, beginning in verse 25. We're told this. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Let's stop there for just a moment. Notice here we're introduced to a righteous and devout man named Simeon who lived in Jerusalem. He had a desire, like I'm sure many Jewish men had in this day, to see what we're told here is the consolation of Israel. That, that phrase means the fulfillment of the messianic Promise. He was waiting for the coming of the Messiah, the, the promise of redemption of Jerusalem. We're, we're reminded here once again that Jesus did not just show up on the scene randomly without warning unannounced. His coming, like we talked about when we were doing our series through uh, Christmas time, right? And during our candlelight service, we were reminded that his coming was foretold in the scriptures. And men like Simeon were waiting for this day. They longed to see it in their lifetime, same as I'm sure many of you feel about the second coming of Jesus. We're longing for that day. They were longing for that first coming, like we should be longing for the second. Well, Simeon actually got to witness Christ's coming. He got a front row seat. We're told at the end of verse 25 that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon and notice what he reveals to him, verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. Simeon's a godly man. He's led by the Spirit of God to the temple on the day Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are there from Nazareth. Let's keep reading. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, there it is again, fulfilling the law on behalf of the infant Messiah, verse 28. He, Simeon, took him, Jesus, up in his arms and blessed God, underline that, 
and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Wow, lots of great things here about Jesus from Simeon. Notice he doesn't simply get to be alive during the time when the hope of Israel appears, when Jesus comes, but he gets a front row seat. Simeon gets to see him, he gets to behold him, he gets to hold him, and he gets to bless him. One of the first things that Simeon does when he sees Jesus is he praises God. Simeon blessed God, not simply for allowing him to witness the Messiah, but for sending a Savior to the world. Notice what he says. Simeon says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Believers, when's the last time you spent time praising God for sending his son? Just spending that whole time of worship, worshiping God for his wonderful work of salvation. It's the only hope you and I have in this life. God deserves great glory and praise for sending a son to save you. I pray you would take time worshiping God for this wonderful work. You're going to be challenged to do that this week in your study guide. Pay attention to that. Got your study guide in your bulletin from Monday through Friday on this sermon. And I, I'm challenging you this week to take time to praise God for his Salvation Because of Jesus' person and work, listen, we as Gentiles are brought in to, to the family, God's family, through faith alone in Christ alone. Simeon alludes to that here. He doesn't simply acknowledge that Christ is the Savior of the Jews, but the Gentiles also. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation, verse 31, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Things were dark completely for the Gentiles before Jesus. Their eyes are going to be open to Jesus, and they're going to be saved. And he says, for your glory, for glory to your people Israel number of the Jews will also come to see and know Christ as Savior. Simeon is one of those who is waiting for the promised Messiah. He is going to trust in Him and is trusting in Him here. The Savior of God's people Israel. These words were told when they hear them. Mary and Joseph, they're, they're amazed by these words. Think about it. They have just heard from this righteous and devout man that salvation has come to both Jew and Gentile in the person of their son Jesus, and they're floored by that news. Look at verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Now, this is not the first time this has happened, right? They've had a pretty eventful pregnancy and first month with this child. They were amazed again and again from the heavenly birth announcement from angels to Jesus' birth in a barn in Bethlehem, the visit of the shepherds, this encounter with Simeon, later the, the encounter with Anna, the visit of the Magi that comes later, and so on. This was an amazing time for Mary and Joseph, but it's about to get sobering as well, as it often does, as Simeon tells Mary of the details of her son's ministry which brings us to our next point 
We learn that Jesus will rescue those who trust in him and condemn those who reject him. Simeon continues to tell Mary and Joseph the details about their son's ministry. Now remember back, I know you remember it, back in Luke 1 when Gabriel tells Zechariah that his son will prepare the way for the Lord and will preach a message of repentance and families will be restored. Simeon gives a similar message to Mary and Joseph here. Gabriel told Zechariah that his son John would prepare the way of the Lord. Simeon tells Joseph and Mary that their son is the Lord, the Savior of the world. He tells them that his message in ministry will bring salvation to both Jew and Gentile. It will bring people together from completely different walks of life in Christ. And Paul really talks about that when he gets into the book of Ephesians. However, he also tells them that Jesus' message and his ministry will also divide. It will separate believers and non-believers. It will spell J-O-Y for the believing and D-O-O-M for the unbelieving. Look at verse 34. It says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. The Jews will rise and fall because of Jesus. Again, everything hinges on what we do with him. Look at this Swindoll quote up on the screen. He would be both a blessing and a curse to individuals depending upon how they regard him. How do you regard him? Where, where do you stand today when it comes to Jesus? Are you trusting in him alone for salvation? Or have you rejected him? There's no greater question in life than that one. Who do you say that he is? What will your response to him be? Scripture is clear. There is salvation for the humble, repentant, and believing, and judgment for the prideful, unrepentant, and unregenerate. Keep reading. Into verse 34. And for a sign that is opposed. That just means some will see Jesus as one who is to be opposed. One who is to be spoken against. And we will see that as his ministry starts up and goes on right before his death. Verse 35. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Now remember, Simeon is speaking to Joseph and Mary here. And he says, a sword will pierce through through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. When commenting on this verse, verse 35, Daryl Bach says this. Look at this quote up on the screen. Great commentary on Luke. The opposition, Je uh, uh, the opposition Jesus produces will be a source of pain to Mary. The mother's pain will emerge from the intense rejection the child will experience. Nothing can be done to avoid it. In a sense, the initial fulfillment of this remark comes in the next event where Jesus' commitment to do the Father's work caused him to stay at the temple and his parents have to journey back to Jerusalem. They're, they're looking for him. They don't know where he is. It causes them pain, he says. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. Block says... That is but the start, however, since the cross will cause Mary to suffer even more. 
while Mary is marveling at who her son is and what he came to do, Simeon gives her some sobering news. This child will grow up to be rejected. He will be put to death. That's what he came to do. That's how he's able to save both Jew and Gentile, through being despised and rejected by men through his death on the cross at Calvary. We're going to end with Anna's story. Look at Anna's story. Verse 36. Luke says this. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna. Great story. Great little blurb we get on her here. Like Simeon, she was godly. She was from the tribe of Asher, probably married in her teens. Her husband died shortly after they married, about seven years after marriage, and she remained a widow for the rest of her life, devoted her days to serving the Lord. She never leaves the temple, meaning she's there constantly, worshiping the Lord, fasting and and praying to Him night and day, year after year. She's in her 80s by the time Jesus is born, and it's no surprise that she in the temple when Mary and Joseph and Jesus come because she's always in the temple. She's a prophetess, meaning she receives and tells forth the truths she receives from God, and therefore it's no surprise that this godly woman recognizes Jesus. When they come, she praises God for sending his son. Again, notice her response, similar to Simeon, right? When when they witness the fulfillment of God's promise to send the Messiah to rescue his people from sin, they, they worship God in response. And again, believers, we should as well. This is a characteristic of godliness. God's people praise God for the salvation of his people. God's people praise God for the salvation of his people. God's people praise God for their salvation. When's the last time you took time to praise God for sending his son? Whenever we think on that wonderful work, our response should be like Simeon and Anna. We should worship God. Notice what else she does. She shares with those waiting for God's promise of redemption to be fulfilled. They're waiting for it to be fulfilled. She shares with them that it's been fulfilled through Jesus. She is a witness for Jesus. Believers, here we have a great example of what we are called to do and be as believers in Anna and Simeon. They praised God for his wonderful salvation. They trusted in his son and they shared of that work with others and they're up there in age aren't they both of them here's another point of application here maybe you're here today and you're in the latter half of your life you've served God in the church all of these years and you feel tapped out you feel like you've done your part you want to just kind of sit back and coast and let these youngsters take over 
I pray you learn the lesson of Simeon and Anna. They remained faithful and were used by God in their latter days to be strong witnesses for Christ. Don't stop until God lays you out. Keep going. Someone asked John MacArthur one time when he's going to retire, he said, when I'm dead and laid out, amen. May we learn from their example. They remained faithful and were used by God in their latter days to be strong witnesses for Christ. Anna spent her days worshiping, witnessing, fasting, and praying. Godly woman. She praised God for sending His Son and then shared of His wonderful work of salvation to others. Faithful woman. May we learn from these examples that Luke gives us here. I want to end this morning with the question I began with, and it's this. Who do you say Jesus is? Ask yourself that question today. Better have an answer. Better be the right one. Whether you believe it or not, it's the most important question in life. How you answer that question, how you respond to who Jesus is, it is of eternal significance. We learn from God's word that Jesus is God the Son who was sent by the Father from heaven to earth, became one of us, lived the perfect life for us, fulfilled all righteousness. He perfectly met the demands of God's commands, laid his life down in our place, taking on God's wrath and punishment that we deserve. He took it on himself. He died. He rose again. He ascended back to the Father's right hand on high, and he is currently seated at his right hand in the heavenlies so that we through him could also enter in to the presence of holy God. God tells us in his word that Christ has accomplished this work so that if we would repent of our sins and place our trust in Christ alone for salvation, we can be forgiven of sin, born again, made righteous, restored to a right relationship with God. Do you have that hope this morning? You can have that hope today if you would give your life up and over to Jesus. If you would look to Christ and trust in Him as your great Lord and Savior, you can be saved today. I urge you, if you have not, do just that. Forsake your sin. Bow the knee to King Jesus today and be saved. Let's pray together.